A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The problem gets individualized. Like no one else. Pretty much identical. A lot of people will read their stories, hear their stories, and kind of individualize it to a problem to them. She's coming now, she's gaining yard for yard on the two in front. They were the weakest link, or they were not strong enough to handle elite sport. They make it look easy. The problem with that is that we forget to pull back and see that's a problem that's much more common among many athletes in those sports. This is just the one brave athlete who's willing to stand up and, and speak about it. Nga mihi nui. Welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Clerken Cannon tēnei. That was the voice of Holly Thorpe, a sociologist in Te Huataki Waiora in the University of Waikato in Kirikiriroa, Hamilton. Now this week... As the 2020 Summer Olympic Games are underway in Tokyo, we bring you a story about a condition called Red S that is affecting many athletes, both elite and amateur. Red S stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, and it's a condition in which an athlete just doesn't have the energy they need to do the amount of exercise they are doing. So this affects the athlete's performance, but Also, there can be damaging impacts on the person's body that are wide-ranging and long-lasting. One of the students Holly co-supervises, Katie Schofield, has just completed her PhD on this topic. Also, she herself has been an elite athlete, a track cyclist. We turn our attention then to the women's team sprint. My event was sprints, so really focused as being the starter for the team sprint. And we're underway then, as we see the New Zealand team of Katie Schofield and Natasha Hansen. So how many years did you cycle for? So a total of eight years being four professional. I came into cycling quite late. I was into track and field before I started cycling. Always kind of dedicated to sport, but track and field and then cycling. Yeah, always active when I was young and then through uni just had series of injuries and not really enjoying still track and field, but not really getting to the stage was, or as wanting to be, like on a world stage. And then, yeah, my strength and conditioner at the time suggested I try track cycling, and that's where it all came to fruition. At uni, Katie studied physical education and human nutrition, doing a bachelor's and then a master's in these areas, before turning her attention full-time to cycling professionally. Her return to study was prompted by her own personal experience. My PhD uses a mixed-method approach to have more of an understanding of low energy availability. What low energy availability is in simple terms is your body doesn't have enough dietary energy to sustain normal physiological functioning. And if that happens, then you can have a range of body systems that are impaired. And that can include bone health, menstrual function, endocrine and metabolic function. Why did you decide to do a PhD in this area? Yeah, it's a good question. Through my own personal experiences with a syndrome called Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, or RED-S. 
And that was through like the middle of my professional career with track cycling. And it cost me a year out of the sport. And through that year, I really uh, learned a lot about this syndrome and found that more needed to be known. From the outside looking in, it seems like a simple maths equation. You eat the calories that you need to do the exercise. And being a professional athlete, are there calculations around the amount of calories that you will expend and the amount of calories that you will take in? Do you do that kind of maths? It does depend on the athlete. Some athletes don't want to do numbers. Some athletes are really particular. I know in my personal experience, I was very particular in numbers and I knew what numbers I needed to hit in terms of intake and expenditure. But it gets really tricky because unless you're in a lab and you can really understand someone's exercise expenditure, it's really difficult to then match that with intake. And not everyone has access to a a high facility exercise physiology lab to then determine what is the energy output. Because in a lab, you might be at a set, so for example, in cycling, a set wattage, and you know what expenditure that wattage is, but when you're training, you're not at one set wattage for the whole time you're training. So it adds a huge complexity. So even if you were to do just the maths to figure out how much you should eat, it's very difficult. It can potentially be very tricky to do. Yeah, it is challenging. And I think, I guess, the biggest point to to make here is that every individual needs a set amount of energy just to survive and to live. And then, so that's our baseline. But for athletes, they're expending a lot more because of their training. So there's an an extra component that they need to account for, for their dietary intake. And many individuals are just meeting the baseline energy demands. And that might just be through lack of awareness, or it just might be that their training volumes are intense or long, and, and it shortens the window of their ability to eat. So you could do this math if you had careful calculations and you were doing controlled levels of exercise in the lab. I mean, there are numbers around this. So your optimal energy availability should be more than 45 kilocalories per kilogram of fat-free mass, which is your body weight multiplied by your percentage body fat per day. So this is the amount of energy that you need available for your body to be healthy and do all its normal things. Of course, real life is messier. And if you consistently drop below this energy availability, it has consequences. So I guess the the first thing was performance plateau. I was removed from the team because of my performances. So it wasn't really until that happened that I went back and looked in how my body felt and what was actually going on. And one of them was menstrual dysfunction. I didn't, I didn't have a period for over two years. So that was my primary point of recovery, was to get that back because I just knew if I had that back, then my performances would improve. 
why does that happen, the menstrual dysfunction? Yeah, so essentially the body is in a starvation state, if you want to put it in that regard. And so the energy that you have in your nutrition, that energy gets put to the exercise that you do first. And then because the body doesn't have enough energy for normal body functions, then it shuts down body systems that are deemed not necessary. And one of them is the menstrual um, functioning. And just a cascade of like, a decrease in particular sex hormones, and then that effectively means that you can lose your menstrual cycle or you have irregular cycles. For people in whom they have you know, a very severe case of this or it goes on for a couple of years unchecked, there are other impacts that it can have on the body, correct? Yeah, for sure. So, like, for example, estrogen is one of the main key sex hormones, um, particularly for females, and that might be down-regulated if we're not having enough nutrition on board. And so that plays a part in your menstrual function but also plays a part in bone metabolism. And so that's where... Athletes can run into the risk of osteoporosis later in life um, just because they've had this downregulation in, in hormones. Okay. Yeah. So that's one part of it. It's like the tip of the iceberg in terms of what else can go wrong. There's so many other body systems that are affected. Probably one of the main indicators that I pushed aside, that was just being completely fatigued and having a really low mood. And I just put that down to, I'm a professional athlete, I should be tired, you know, because I am training hard twice a day for most days of the week. And so having that, the fatigue and the low mood or being quite emotional over the tiniest things um, should have been more alarm, alarm bells. But I guess I was in that situation for so long that became my normal. So it wasn't until I was taken out of the sport that I realised, okay, I'm feeling really tired today. I'm going to take the day off. Mm. Whereas in, you know, at the time when I was in the sport, if you had a day off, you were seen as a little bit weak or you're not mm. coping. So if I'm showing that I'm not coping in this environment, then um, my coach is going to think otherwise and then I might not get s selected for the team. So it's just all this internal messaging that I was doing on myself and clearly being energy deficient that plays a huge role in, in your psyche and, and how you perceive particular things mm. incorrectly. But yeah, you can go into the spiral. Like I said, real life is messier. Because beyond miscalculations of calories and energy in and energy out, there are other reasons that red S might happen. Here's Holly Thorpe again. It gets more complicated when athletes are intentionally limiting what they eat, and that might be because of body image issues, disordered eating practices, addiction to exercise. And so they're not intentionally trying to go into relative energy deficiency, but they're intentionally restricting what they eat. And that's where it gets much more complicated in terms of supporting those athletes to recovery. Often they're much more likely to be in denial or that behavioural change when they get that support around them, um, medical support, multidisciplinary support around them. 
it might be very hard for them to change those practices because they've become quite ingrained and quite routine and they don't want to put on weight. There's often fears of that, often a lot of fears and phobia around particular types of food. So in Katie's research, the idea of carbohydrates, particularly as the, the female athletes, there was a real terror or fear of carbohydrates. Do we have any idea of the prevalence of red S in New Zealand athletes, high-performance athletes? It's quite sports-specific. Different sports have very different pressures on athletes. Historically, the research overseas, and I'd say New Zealand too, has shown high prevalence in sports like ballet or figure skating, sports where the physique is very much part of Mm. um, the judging criteria. Often endurance sports, marathons, etc., where lean is typically associated with performance, a very lean physique. So we see quite high prevalence there. But what we're seeing signs of in New Zealand is that it's not just those sports anymore. Um, We're seeing in team sports, we're seeing in a whole range of sports, whether it's track cycling, rugby sevens, weightlifting, you know, this condition does not discriminate per sport. Mm. And when you say high prevalence in certain sports, what's a high prevalence? Well, some of the international statistics shows up around like 75, 80% in some sports. Mm. Really? Yeah. Mm. Our survey that we recently did, the WISPA survey, across 219 elite women athletes in New Zealand, we weren't in that survey trying to diagnose athletes, but we were trying to get a sense of the risk factors across women in sport and high-performance sport in New Zealand. And there are a number of clear indicators in that survey that the prevalence of this condition is high among our female athletes in New Zealand. Now, we have mentioned female athletes and menstruation here quite frequently. And the research does suggest it is more prevalent in female athletes. But red S can affect people across the gender spectrum. Some of those signs and symptoms that Katie was talking about, often we talk about you know, if you haven't had your period for so long, that's a red flag to watch out for. And we're increasingly encouraging athletes to, to track the menstrual cycle, etc. But there's all these other signs and symptoms that you might pick up well before the mm. menstrual cycle's affected. Just even illnesses. Like, for me, I was getting tonsillitis, you know, it seemed like mm. twice or three times throughout the season. And again, I just put it down to training really hard. But if I really looked at my nutrition going, okay, I probably needed to have a few extra calories on board so that I could recover properly Mm. after hard training. Yeah, I mean, the immune system is impacted, so you'll see athletes get a lot more colds and bugs. And then things like, you know, it might not necessarily be at that osteoporosis level, but stress fractures. So often it's those types of things, the injuries associated with red S, that's what often stops if it's not the performance that's been affected, if an athlete's going to have to keep pushing on, the performance is okay, it's often when they say those injuries, potentially career-ending injuries, that often stop athletes and go, okay, I'm ready to create change here. And that change is really, really hard. I mean, it's not a simple matter of a doctor saying, you need to eat more. Mm-hmm. Actually, that, that process of behavioural change with this is really complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's tied up with self-worth and these deeply ingrained kind of practices. Yeah, and I think I think having those signs and symptoms of, of illness or mood changes or fatigue is, is a really good indicator. I feel like at the moment we're stepping 
a lot in terms of menstrual cycle is mm. one of the key diagnoses. But, you know, majority of athletes are probably on an oral contraceptive pill, mm. which then really makes things more complex or they might have an IUD and that again changes your menstrual function and so I guess we really need to work on those other signs and symptoms than just a menstrual cycle because say an athlete they have their menstrual cycle every month and then they go okay I'm fine but they could be actually sick all the time or they could be injured all the time or they might be struggling you know, with concentration, but because I guess a lot of the messaging has been around menstrual cycle, and if you have your menstrual cycle, you're fine, I think we also need to start moving away from just that as a conversation. I've got to say, before I started reading into this, I did kind of have that perception that if you were training really hard, you didn't menstruate, and that was perfectly normal and fine. And then when I started reading and I was like, oh, actually, that's not normal and fine. It shouldn't be that way. In some sports, it's actually expected. Mm-hmm. If you're actually in your peak performance and prime condition, you shouldn't be menstruating. That is a, a very dangerous idea that's been normalised, particularly in endurance sports. But, you know, coaches and athletes will take that as absolutely true, as, as a form of truth. But actually, we're trying to say that that's really problematic and it shouldn't be considered normal. And actually, this is not just elite athletes, and that's how I came to this topic originally as a woman who was, you know, finished my PhD and I was running and carefully watching my diet and doing all those kind of things that you're supposed to do if you're taking care of your health. And I I experienced this condition. So it's not just elite athletes. It is actually affecting everyday exercisers who are also watching their, their diet closely. And I think that's an area that gets less research, but, you know, we're seeing it in in women of all walks of life, actually, not just our elite athletes. And I think that's quite important to remember. For Katie's mixed method research for her PhD, the idea was to do a new kind of study into Red S, one that captures the whole scene of what is happening to the athlete. I was actually looking at both male and female. Um, given that the Red S model does incorporate male athletes. But in terms of mixed methods, what I mean by that is looking at quantitative data, so looking at blood results, body composition scans, bone health scans, that side of the physiology of an individual, but then also conducting qualitative research in terms of interviews and getting more of an insight into the lived experiences of of athletes in terms of their nutritional practices, what's the high-performance environment that they're in, and do they hold any pressures in terms of their body image. Um, So that really helped to put the the physiological and the quantitative data into context based on, on what we're learning from the athletes' voices. It's quite often that we have these complex health conditions or complex social problems and we, as researchers, need to break them down into parts so that we can study those complexities, right? But a condition like Red S, we don't really fully understand the condition unless we bring all those parts together and that's why Katie's PhD was so innovative it was her training is in sports science but she trained herself to be able to do qualitative methods and interviews because she recognizes the power in athlete stories and then you help understand why an athlete's in that situation you recognize some of the things that are going on in their life that 
have got them into a low energy availability state. So that kind of research is harder, right? It's a lot harder to bring the pieces together and to work across disciplines and to understand those complexities. But that's really important research going forward. And Katie, because of her lived experience and her passion as an athlete coming through this, is such an important role model in this relative energy deficiency female athlete health space. Because young female athletes, as much as they might sit there and listen to us researchers or scientists or sports doctors, and they'll nod their heads, but actually to hear the story of an athlete, they connect with that at a much deeper level and they listen. Holly is a strong advocate for women in sport and for making sure that female athletes' needs are accounted for and addressed. She is part of a multidisciplinary team established by High Performance Sports New Zealand in 2017 called WISPA. And this is an acronym for Women's Health in Sports, a Performance Advantage. So in this WISPA group, there's sports scientists, sports doctors, physiotherapists, psychologists, nutritionists, endocrinologists, and Holly as a sociologist. And it was tricky at the start, she said, to learn to work together across all these disciplines. But now she's super excited about how New Zealand has the potential to lead the way with this multidisciplinary approach to complicated problems such as Red S and others. I think it's quite helpful sometimes to recognise there's kind of different scales in which the athlete is being impacted and the kind of pressures on athletes. So we can think about the, the micro level, the meso level and the macro level. So the micro level is the individual athlete and their psychology and some of them might have particular genetic predispositions to particular things and how they're processing the environment around them. Then at that meso level around that athlete, you've got coaches, you've got the fellow athletes, you've got that that high-performance sporting environment where it's a very high-pressure environment and you've got to perform or else watch out, someone's going to take your spot. And there are a lot of pressures and expectations on those athletes to constantly be performing. And those pressures, you know, you can have amazing coaches working with athletes, but also we've seen... Internationally, and this happens in New Zealand too, you've got coaches who are, um, it's not a healthy environment for those athletes. There's abuses of power, there are, you know, they, they'll say things like, you need to lose some, some weight, or you're off the team, or your, your performance is really dropping, you need to lose some weight, or, you know, and for athletes, they can really internalise that vulnerability. And then you've got that macro level, which is broader social kind of pressures on athletes. And we're seeing in our research that's coming through from the media. Social media is having a real big impact on mm. particularly female athletes' health and well-being, where they're really internalising these kinds of expectations of um, what you're supposed to look like as an athlete, but also as a female athlete. There's all those kinds of beauty and femininity and success, those ideas but they're also got to deal with a whole lot of trolling and online abuse. And so, you know, people will say horrible things. Oh, you're too muscular. What kind of woman are you? Or that kind of environment that these athletes are negotiating. So it's no wonder, actually, that our, our athletes are struggling under all that, those layers of pressure. Katie's story has a happy ending. After her year of recovery, she was able to get back on the team and was selected for the 2015 World Championships. And now she is one of those brave athletes that Holly mentioned at the start, who speak about their experience. 
By telling her story, Katie hopes to spread awareness of Red S. And alongside Holly and the Whisper team, they hope that they can remove some of the damaging myths, like missing your period is a good sign of training hard, or that having reward and punishment type relationships with food is a good thing. And they want to promote a culture where the athlete is looked after fully. People expect them to be training hard and eating very carefully, etc., to quite extremes sometimes. And people go, oh, that's just because they're an elite athlete. But it doesn't mean those, that relationship with food or with their body image is necessarily healthy or good for them. It's kind of like a workaholic, right? It's like you get patted on the back for it because you're an athlete or you're working so hard. But actually, at what point does it start damaging your long-term health and well-being? And those people around our athletes our parents, our coaches, support staff, that's, that's their responsibility. Some of them are paid to be looking out for those athletes, not just as someone who's going to perform well at the next Olympics, but as a human being. And we should be caring about their health and well-being long term. And unfortunately, even in sporting environments, with a full wraparound support, even with sports doctors and nutritionists and psychologists, we're still seeing really high rates you'd think we'd be catching it, but we're not. That's where the work of Whisper has got to keep ramping it up. We've got much more to do here. But I think also with the, the more research that's coming out and the more awareness of this, there are sports and coaches that are doing really positive things mm. in this space, which is really exciting to see. It's mm, good. Yeah. Thanks to Katie Schofield and Holly Thorpe of the University of Waikato. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Phil Bench. Tim Watkin is the executive producer. I do say this every week, but you should follow the show. Do it so you never miss an episode that will just download straight to your device. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. The show's website is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. I'll share some photos and links relevant to this chat and where you can go to find out more. And if you want to get in touch with us to let us know your thoughts, please do. We are on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. There are lots of other great podcasts on RNZ to explore. If you click on the podcast and series tab, you can see there's a whole range of them. And I can recommend Voices, a podcast on people from diverse global backgrounds living in New Zealand. In particular, check out the interview with Muslim women athletes during Ramadan. Super interesting. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon and I'll be back next week. Kia pai to wiki.